you're just joining us, we've uh, been working through Paul's life over the last several weeks or so, and just trying to sort of tie the letters of Paul into the life or to the biography that, that we find in the book of Acts. And so we've been, been, been spending quite a bit of time doing that. Um, and for those of you who have been following along, we're actually about two weeks away. So this will be our second last week um, before we get to to the end of this story. So hopefully it's been helpful. Hopefully you've been enjoying this sort of, sort of journey through the life of, of Paul. Um, but where we left off last week, we saw Paul writing to the Romans, and he was writing that letter from uh, from Corinth, probably over the winter um, of maybe 55, 56. Now, the dating that we're using to try to recount this this story, they're, they're depending on who you read, you're going to get a different set of dates as to um, uh, as to what happens or, or where all of these events are taking place, um, because simply we just don't know. Um, we we just don't we simply don't know what was um, when exactly these these events were happening. Um, the fact was that um, even in Paul's time, they weren't counting the years in a linear fashion. They weren't counting the year zero, one, two, three. We added that later on, retrospectively added that linear uh, counting much much later on in in church history. And so we just we just don't know one hundred percent for sure exactly what what the dates were. Um, one of the ways in which we we sort of get a sense of about when it was happening was a few events that take place in the Book of Acts that we can we know when those happened in other sources, and we know about the year when those were happening according to the other sources. So what, the way that the Romans would count their years would be that they would count them along with um, who the particular consul of that year was. So there was the two consuls every year and that that would be the year of such and such and such and such. And so because we've got an idea of what years those were, when they talk about certain events that we find in the New Testament, then we can sort of correlate the two and say, well, if that was happening then, then we can sort of count backwards and count forwards as to when Paul um, was, was these sort of things were happening. So a couple of events that he talks about, for example, in, um, in 2 Corinthians, he talks about when he was in Damascus, the king of Damascus was trying to kill him. Well, that was an event that we know happened in sort of the mid-30s, that, so we can sort of count to- Paul's time in Arabia to around about that period. Uh, when the Jews were kicked out of Rome, we talked about that last week, when the Jews were kicked out of Rome, we... Well, there's two different schools of thought. One says that was in 41, and another one says that was in the year 49. Most go with 49. And so then we can say, well, that would be the year then that Priscilla and Aquila were kicked out, and that would have been when Paul came to Corinth. So there's a couple of um, – we, we can we can trace out the, the time – we can trace out the, the, the events of Paul's life as Luke – uh, presents them, um, that's easy enough. But then when we can add a couple of dates to it, then we can start to backfill and start to fill in what was happening, what the years were in between. So anyway, that's about where we're uh, sort of how we do it. So the dates that I'm using are a fairly standard sort of set of dates 
as to when all of these things were taking place. And so where we left off last week was probably the winter of 55, 56. It could have been the next year, but we'll go with 55, 56. And at the end of the day, it actually doesn't matter. It's just what scholars do so that we've got something to talk about. Um, and it, it is a little bit helpful, but it doesn't actually change the core of the story at the end of the day. So anyway, we find ourselves over the winter of 55, 56, and Paul was in Corinth. He's written to the Romans. And what we find in the letter of Romans is really Paul finishing up um, a, a season of his life. Um, Paul's getting pretty old by this stage. Paul's getting up towards probably his um, sort of late 50s, moving up towards 60, which, you know, by today's standards isn't very old. Um, you've still got a lot of life ahead of you and still probably even some of your work in life ahead of you. But in the ancient world, that is getting pretty old. Uh, you know, when your average life expectancy is about 35, if you get past 40, there's a good chance you're going to make it to 60. But if you do get there, you're going to be pretty beaten up. Um, you've gone through some pretty horrific diseases. Um, you know, you've probably had malaria or tuberculosis or typhoid, one of the three big killers in the ancient world. Um, you know, you've been through periods of hunger. You've, you've just, you've had a hard life. That's just your reality. Um, if you're working labor, laboring like Paul does, you know, you've been working in pretty horrific conditions. So, you know, to have, you've really survived to 60. It's not that you've flourished for a long period of time and now you're 60, but you're still flourishing. You're pretty much just hanging in there and you would be looking the worst for wear at this stage. And so Paul just knows that he's getting to the end of his life. Um, nobody really lives beyond their 60s and the, the rare ones that might live into their 80s. I mean, they're the ones you write stories about. That's just, an, they're an absolute miracle, uh, an exception to the story. So all of this is in the back of Paul's mind. He knows that um, he's getting towards the end of his life and he's also has really signed off on what he's done to that point. He knows that he has achieved what he wants to that point. Paul's goal through all of this is to preach the gospel to the ends of the earth. And as we've talked about, the ends of the earth was Spain. That was the edge of Europe. They haven't discovered America yet. So as far as he's concerned, once you get to the ocean, that's it. You've, you've gone to the ends of the earth. And there, there have been other missionaries that have gone in all of the other directions. And so for Paul, his calling was into the Roman Empire, but specifically to the Gentiles. And so he's been just feverishly working towards that. He's covered um, sort of Asia Minor um, in his first and third journeys. He's covered Greece and Macedonia. And then he's moved really just to the edges of, of Greece, moving over towards, um, towards Italy, and then again with a view towards Spain. Um, but at the same time, there's been other people who have been working, and that especially there's already a church established in Rome. Now, that goes all the way back to prior to Paul's salvation or Paul's conversion. Uh, and so there's already been that has work has been done throughout this region. So Paul's goal is to preach in areas that haven't been preached before because, you know, it's not just him doing it. Everyone's chipping in. They're, they're playing their part. And so this gospel has been going out very feverishly. So he's covered all of that area. Um, and that's really been his goal, and so now he wants to get to Spain. But there's been a second element to his uh, to his journeys, to, to what he's been trying to achieve through this, and that has been to take up this offering for Jerusalem. Uh, and so there's been a, there's a couple of uh, points to 
taking up this offering. The first one is to just to provide financial, practical support for the Christians back in Jerusalem. Um, they've been going through a hard time. There, there's probably been a famine there that has impoverished um, the city and the Christians have been impacted by that. You've probably got a, situations of other Christians who have been excommunicated from their families. They've become Christians and as a result of that, they've been cut off from their primary, from their only means of support. And so therefore need, uh, that, that's become a, a burden to the church. And so they've been taken on that responsibility. Well, you can only go so far with the resources that you have. And so what Paul's trying to do is to provide uh, a, a, another source of, of support for the, to meet these practical needs. But there's also the second um, sort of purpose to this support, which is that Paul wants to just build a bridge between the Gentile and the Christ, uh, the Jewish and the Gentile Christians. So the thing to keep in mind, of course, is that in Jerusalem, you've only got Jewish Christians. You've only got Jews there. I mean, there is just very few, if any, Gentiles that live in um, that live in Jerusalem, and the ones that are do are probably Roman. Uh, and so, you know, those are the soldiers that are there to keep the rest of them under control. So they're not popular ones, and they're certainly not Christians. Um, so in that context you've only got jewish christians and you've got jewish christians who have been brought up as jewish people they're still living in a jewish world and they are the minority they are the ones who are um you know going to be persecuted or they're certainly still uh holding on to a lot of the traditions and we'll see in a moment how important this was and so what Paul wants to do is to establish a connection, build a bridge to say, hey, all these Gentiles that you are, um, that, that I've been preaching to, and, and keeping in mind that they, they're not, they're, they're only sort of hearing secondhand or thirdhand reports of, of rumors of what might be happening. They don't really know these Gentiles. They don't know this Gentile world. And so these guys that are becoming Christians, well, what type of Christians are we talking about here? So the point is really just to say, hey, these Gentile Christians that uh, I've been preaching to, they're your brothers and sisters. They, um, you know, they're not worried about the Jew-Gentile divide. And so this is their way of trying to build that kind of bridge of connection between the two groups. So those have been the two key things that Paul has been trying to do. And so that's all done now. Um, he's had that big falling out with the Corinthians, he's, but he's managed to uh, sort of get those guys back on side, even to the extent of them coming back around to the, to the offering and, and, and contributing towards that. So that's done. He's, he's been in Corinth. He's picked up the offering and now he's traveling back to Jerusalem, but he's taking the long way. So throughout the year of 56, he's traveling uh, firstly back through Macedonia um, and then he's going sort of down through Ephesus. And you can sort of read about all of this through Acts 19 and 20. Uh, it's, it's a long story. We won't go into it. But basically, Paul's going back and visiting all of his old churches. And it's his, again, it's his farewell tour. This is Paul going and just giving them a last words of encouragement, just establishing there uh, a uh, just a, a network or establishing there a, a ministry that will last beyond him. Really, this is just the make sure that his legacy doesn't die with him. Make sure that there's good teachers in place, good leaders in place that are going to continue on the work that he's begun. And then he's going to make his way back to Jerusalem and 
we'll see what happens there. Um, but what's interesting, however, is that as he's traveling back, he keeps getting all these prophecies. All these people keep saying to him, man, you don't want to go back there. They, they don't like you back there. Um, you're safe out here. Don't go to Jerusalem because there's people there that want to kill you. And now Paul's not stupid. He knows that. He, you know, think about the, the person that he was when he was there. I mean, there were probably Christians that, you know, they hear about this Saul that used to murder Christians. And then you've got other Jews who are like, this guy's an apostate. He's, he's betrayed us. He was Saul the great Pharisee. And now he's Saul the apostate Christian. Um, I mean, he's, he's really made some enemies back in Jerusalem and he knows that. And more than that, he's just, he's been going around the world causing problems in the Jewish community, um, causing problems in synagogues. I mean, it's all terrible. I mean, if you talk about gossip and you talk about innuendos and stories being exaggerated out of all proportion, um, you know, it's pretty bad on social media. But, I mean, you can see on social media today what's happening around the world. This is in a time where it's all just rumor and speculation and the worst possible accounts of the stories that what are going to go back to Jerusalem. I mean, Paul is not a popular guy back there. And so those, they're prophesying and they're saying, Paul, they want to, they're going to kill you back there. Something terrible is waiting for you in Jerusalem. And, and, and Paul's not stupid. He knows that. He knows, what's, he knows what's ahead of him, but he knows what he has to do. He knows he has to take this offering back and get back to, to the city um, and then come what may. And then after that, as he says, I'm going to get to Rome and that's where we're going to continue on. The story. So anyway, that's a bit of a sort of round summary, summarizing, I guess, where we've been um, and where we're about to get to in today's episode. So there's this whole other story that's been happening. Um, well, there's been a number of different stories that have been happening while we've been following Paul around the Mediterranean. Luke just follows Paul's story. And so it's easy for us to just think that Paul was the only one doing any of this stuff. But we've got to remember that there were still the other 12 that were out preaching all over the world and there was still a lot of things happening back in Jerusalem and, and importantly there's one very uh, well the key character in in the whole Christian story that has been has remained back in Jerusalem for this entire time and that's that's the uh, well um, not one of the 12 but the head of the church um, the brother James now, this James that we're talking about is Jesus's brother. He's not one of the 12. Um, in fact, when Jesus was around, he was one of the guys who was saying, hey, Jesus, um, you're an embarrassment to the family. Can you calm down and stop making us look stupid? Um, he, he didn't, he wasn't uh, in wanting to be involved in this in any way, shape and form. Uh, and But yet now, um, post-resurrection, James has become, well, not just a Christian, but he's become the Christian. He's actually become the head of the church uh, worldwide, but based in Jerusalem. And so it's this James that when they're trying to sort out the whole Jew, the, the whole Gentile being circumcised issue, they go back to Jerusalem and they have a council and they have it with James. Uh, and so he is the man. He is the key character. Now, I don't want to make any jokes about nepotism, but it, you know, maybe it does help that if you're literally Jesus's half-brother, that um, maybe this is how this all comes about. Who knows? But at any rate, James is the guy back in Jerusalem. And what we find, what we find out about James is that, well, he's probably got one of the toughest jobs. I mean, Paul's had a pretty tough job preaching to Gentiles and, uh, you know, going around and, you know, really just preaching an anti-imperial message. That, that's definitely a tough job because that one can, can actually get you killed. But James has also got a pretty tough job in that he's got to keep all the Christians 
in Jerusalem alive. Uh, you, you're living in a very hostile environment that we've just talked about. And to be a Christian in Jerusalem is as challenging as being a Christian in Rome or in Corinth or in Philippi. It, it's a tough gig. You know, out in the Gentile cities, you've got these Gentiles who are loyal to the emperor and who are worshiping him. And so these Christians say, no, he's not God. Back in Jerusalem, it's not, they're not worshiping the emperor, of course, but they're holding to their traditions. And the um, passion that some of these Jews have about eradicating Christianity, that is still there. What Saul embodied wasn't just Saul was a uniquely murderous person who just wanted to get rid of Christians. He was the, um, he was the logical conclusion or the embodiment of an idea that is unless we kill these Christians, we, the resurrection will not happen. God will not restore us, and so we have to kill the Christians. So that idea is still there. We want to bring about the second coming. We want to, we want to bring about God's, God's redemption of us, and that will not happen so long as we're tolerating this idolatry. Uh, so they are still very anti-Christian, um, and that can certainly has the potential to break out into all sorts of trouble. And the added layer to that is if it does break out into trouble, there are all these Roman authorities there who are ready to put it down and kill everybody. And they're not going to discriminate between the Christian and the Orthodox Jews. They're just going to kill everyone. So there's that's a really tough tension that you have to navigate. And so for James, that's his job. He's got to be the diplomat here who's trying to help the Christians to survive but also to flourish but at the same time to help them to be able to live amongst their majority orthodox jewish uh, city um in a way that is not going to bring about their demise so that that is a tough job and in fact james was noted for being very very good at that in fact it was after the time after he died that things really started to go bad again. He did such a good job in his lifetime, was able to hold this together. So much so that even the, the Jewish historian Josephus even acknowledges how, how good this guy was, James the Just. I mean, he was that good at, at managing to do this. But then, again, after he was, well, he was martyred, um, well, obviously there were some people who weren't impressed with him because they actually killed him. But he, after that, everything started to go badly again. So that was the role that James was doing. And so for him, he's been, he's been able to manage that pretty well so far, but he's about to have an extremely difficult challenge in the arrival of Paul. So we pick up the story in Acts 21. It says, When we arrived at Jerusalem, the brothers and sisters received us warmly. The next day, Paul and the rest of us went to see James, and all the elders were present. Paul greeted them and reported in detail what God had done amongst the Gentiles through his ministry. So the first thing, of course, Paul is going to do is to go and visit James. That's priority number one. Uh, so he's going to go there and just, as it says, just to give an account of what he's done, everything he's been doing, you know, just catching up on the last X number of years because they haven't seen each other probably since the beginning of Paul's ministry. There may have been one more trip to Jerusalem, but otherwise, yeah, there hasn't been a lot of contact. So just catch him up and, you know, basically, yeah, just... You know, what do I need to do? How do I sort of make your life easy as whilst ever I'm in the city? 
So he goes on, and this is James's response to uh, to Paul. He says, "You see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed, and all of them are zealous for the law. They have been informed that you teach all the Jews who live amongst the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to our customs. What shall we do? They will certainly hear that you have come." Now, already we can see the, um, the, the sort of the fake news that is spreading around the stories of Paul. But first, James has pointed out, and he's saying, hey, look how many Christians are in Jerusalem now. This is great news, but it's also really bad news because that's already causing tension in that there are so many Christians in the city. So we've got all these Christians here, and the problem is they're zealous. They're also zealous for the law. So what that means is you've got Christian Jews who are still holding to the Jewish traditions. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. And that was always Paul's point. There's nothing wrong with eating kosher or being circumcised or any of those things. Paul's problem throughout his whole ministry has always been insisting the Gentiles have to do that as well. So he's got no problems with the customs. Um, And he probably still observed many of them himself. That has never been the problem. And in Jerusalem, the Christians here are all Jewish Christians who've been raised according to the customs, who've become Christians and are still maintaining the customs and are probably having children and circumcising their children and, and all of these things. Because for them, none of those things are of any consequence. Uh, they, as, so long as they don't see those things as the means to their salvation, then there's no problem. And the upside of it is, is that they can still live within uh, Jerusalem and still uh, live amongst their people without causing any troubles. The, what would have made it hard for the Jewish people in Jerusalem is to say, all right, now that I'm a Christian, I'm going to stop observing kosher and stop observing Sabbath, and I'm actually just going to become a lawbreaker, a Jewish lawbreaker. Well, that's no good. That's going to get you in all sorts of trouble and bring the Christians into uh, into a negative light. So let's we're not going to do any of that, and we don't want to do any of that. We don't need to do any of that because we're still Jewish people as well. So that's all fine and well. That's what this, that's how we describe the Jews in uh, in the city here. And again, you know, for Paul, any Jews out in the diaspora that are Christians but still maintain the traditions, again, not a problem. Paul's message, again, has always been just don't insist that the Gentiles have to do this. But look at what they're saying here. So they're saying these Christian Jews who are still maintaining the customs have been have heard that you're telling the Gentiles, so the Jews, not to do these things, to turn away from Moses, which is not true. Paul's never done any of that stuff. You know, he, he will say to a Jew, hey, look, those things aren't important anymore. They're not a means to salvation, but he would never stop them from doing that. He probably did that himself. This is not actually what Paul is saying. To So this, this is obviously not true. This is a false accusation about Paul, but this is the sort of thing that you want to say about a guy if you want to if, if you hate him, if you want him to be dead, um, you know, this is, this, this is exactly the sort of thing that an apostate would do because this is the stuff that they've, they fear the most, telling Jews to stop being Jews. So this in and of itself is a really powerful accusation. It's not true, but it's, Paul, it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a twist on the truth that is enough to make it 
absolutely terrible. Now, the opposite, which is what Paul is doing, is of no consequence. Saying to Gentiles, don't be circumcised, is neither here nor there, really, for the Jews back in Jerusalem. But this is really, really bad. And it just just hinges or just connects or parallels just that little bit to what Paul is actually saying is what they're accusing him of saying here. So this, for James, is a massive concern. Understandably, this is a huge concern. And we see this in response. What shall we do? They will certainly hear that you have come. And, And what makes this even worse is that when they come to find him, where is he going to be? He's going to be with James. So for James, who's been maintaining this very tense peace throughout all of these years, is now going to... Um, potentially have all of that come undone by harboring this very guy who's out there trying to, you know, as far as the Jews, people in Jerusalem are concerned, tearing apart the Jewish community. So all of this is absolutely terrible, and James is rightly worried. Um, he knows none of it is true. That's fine, but he's not going to be able to convince these people otherwise. And what is making it worse, again, is that James, and by extension the whole church in Jerusalem, are harboring Paul, who is the one who's out there doing all of this stuff. So they are naturally concerned about this. And Paul would be conscious of, of this concern as well. And so what they come up with is the solution where Paul takes part in a ritual purification. We won't read the whole story about it, but it's where he has to shave his head um, and then fast for seven days. And it, the, the idea of it, it's it's to mimic uh, Samson. Um, it's it, I can't remember the name of the fast, but it's basically mim- mimicking what Samson had done. Uh, and so what Paul, what they're saying to Paul is, you know, basically take part in this purification so that you can and, – and, and pay for these other guys as well. Really throw yourself into it and show these people that, hey, you know, I'm, I'm still maintaining the traditions, you know, plain and simple. You know, before – now the idea of the, um, the cleanse or the idea of the purification is that before you go into the temple, you have to be ritually cleansed. You have to be ritually pure. Uh, and that's, of course, true for anybody. Uh, and so what they are saying to Paul is make a really public show of it, right? Make sure that everyone sees you taking part in this before you go to the temple just to show that you've still got that respect because what they're accusing Paul of here is that they're, you know, to, to um, uh, turn away from Moses is to turn away from the temple. It's to turn away from all of their customs and, and to really just be a total apostate. And so... You know, you can't be that and go to the temple. So again, this is Paul really publicly showing everybody, hey, I'm with you guys. I'm, you know, I, I'm still, um, you know, I'm still a Jewish person. Uh, and so let them see that. Let them publicly see that before you go in there. So that's the solution that they sort of come up with. And, you know, that's, it's a pretty good solution. You know, Paul's not violating any of his Christian oaths by uh, by doing this. Um, he's just, you know, it's it's kind of like if you were, you know, if you're a person, a female going over into an Islamic country to preach over there, um, you know, or to just participate, you would wear a wear a burqa, you wear a head covering, just to to show that you you're respectful to the customs of of the region. It's it's something to that effect is what Paul's doing here. So anyway, he does all of that, but then the story goes on. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! 
This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law in this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. So the timing of this particular story, where we find ourselves here, is around about the time of Pentecost. And as we've already seen, uh, what that means is that you've got diaspora Jews coming from all over the world to join in with the festivities. We saw that last week with all of the Jews coming to Rome to celebrate Passover and then Pentecost and then you know becoming Christians and then going back to Rome and, and starting the church there. So that happens every year. Jerusalem every year is absolutely filled with people um, in uh, you know coming in to, to celebrate the, the occasions, to celebrate the, the festivals. And so Paul's come down there for that purpose as well, not just to bring the offering, but also to come and celebrate. Uh, and so it happens to be around the time of Pentecost. Now, he's just come from Ephesus. Now, when it talks about Jews from Asia, this would be Jews from Ephesus. So, um, you know, with the, when it says that Paul remained, Paul stayed in Greece, well, that means that he stayed in Corinth. Um, that was like the capital city. So that's naturally where it's referring to. Uh, in the same way, when we talk about Jews coming from Asia, they're talking about Ephesus. Now, that's where Paul had just been. He'd just come from Ephesus and he'd sailed from there down into, into Jerusalem. And so they might, they, they would have recognized Paul uh, probably from their own experience of him because he was in Ephesus for three years. He'd been there for a long time. And so they would have certainly absolutely heard about him um, if they had if they hadn't seen him as well. So they would have recognized him. In fact, that seems to be what happened here. They've recognized him from, hey, we know you, you're from back where we come from. And so this guy, Trophimus, we don't know who who this guy is, but presumably, um, well, here's the, here's the Ephesian, uh, as it says previously, the Trophimus, the Ephesian. So they might have even known Trophimus as well. Um, or at the very least, they would have recognized him as Paul's traveling companion. Now, the guy happens to be a Greek. Um, and so what they do is they sort of take what is true in that Trophimus was indeed with Paul, but then uh, add the extra layer to the story, which is that he brought him into the temple. Now, the way the, to, if you, you can sort of, if you Google a picture of the Jewish temple, what you notice is that there is an outer court and then there's an inner court. Now, the outer court is known as the court of the Gentiles. This is as far as the Gentiles can come in. So there are always going... So the, the temple is welcoming to Gentiles um, because Gentiles do convert to Judaism. Uh, and so they acknowledge that reality. The problem that Jesus had with what was going on in the temple was that they were filling up the temp the, the, the Gentile section with money traders. They, were, they just turned it into a marketplace, which as opposed to what it should have been, which was a place for the Gentiles to come and worship. So these Gentiles who have converted to Judaism should be able to use that as their holy space. And so you imagine, um, you know, this is where they've, they're supposed to be coming to church and instead of being able to worship in church, there's a market in, in, in the church building. That's, that's obviously not very good. So Jesus is indeed obviously furious about that. Well, that's the area that we're talking about here. And so that's probably where they were. In fact, I mean, that certainly seems to be where they were. Um, what they're accusing him of is taking... Uh, this Trophimus into the inner court, which is you can that's only open to Jewish people. In fact, uh, in uh, as far as the Romans are concerned, that's the one thing that the Jewish people actually have legal um, 
legal ability to execute anyone violating that law. So, as you know, with within Roman um, within Roman provinces, Roman cities, the only person who can perform an execution is the governor, the, the Roman authority in the region. He's the only one that has that authority. Um, but in this case, this is the one exception that the Romans made: is that if you bring if the if the you bring a Gentile in, you can be executed for that by the Jewish authorities, and the Romans won't intervene. That they, they'll allow that to happen. And so, in fact, there was a sign above the entryway into the inner court which stated that clearly, if you violate this law, you will be killed. And it's written in Greek and Latin just to make sure that everybody knows that they can, you know, the, the Gentiles will understand what's going on if you come in here. So this is a very serious thing that they're accusing him of. And it gives them uh, an upside in that if they can make the charge stick, then they can execute Paul without any Roman intervention. This is the one area that they can actually go and kill Paul and, and the Romans aren't going to stop him from doing that. So this is a serious thing and this is what they've they've charged him with. Now, of course, it's not true, but that's, does, well, you know, why let truth get in the way of a good story? Uh, if they can get enough of a, um, a riot to happen, if they can get enough of a, a tumult stirred up, then we've got enough grounds to... Um, to bring about this, the thing that we really want is to rid the earth of this guy, Paul. So they've got him where they want him. Um, and that's where this story is about to turn really, really ugly. Hey, I just wanted to take a moment to say thank you so much for listening. I hope you're finding this podcast helpful. If you're enjoying it, please consider leaving a five-star review, which will really help to spread it further. And you might also enjoy the YouTube channel and other social media. You can find the link for these in the show notes. You might also consider supporting the channel financially. You can do that through the same link. But anyway, back to the show. So the, um, well, Paul's just been charged with a, the one capital offence that you can be charged with in Jerusalem. And it's a serious crime. This is a, this is a really bad thing that Paul's been charged with. And so the, what, it, what happens next really makes sense. So it says, Then all the city was stirred up and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. As they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort. And so we find out later on that this guy's this is a guy by the name of Claudius Lysias. So the tribune of the cohort, that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Okay, so this is a really this just got to sort of try to put yourself into this moment here. Um, so the whole city, and of course, not into everyone in the city, but you know, heaps and heaps of people that were around that heard this accusation being made, that were in earshot of these guys yelling out, "Hey, this guy's done this!" They've all come running, and they seize Paul, they drag him out of the temple, and they shut the gates, um, and then they're trying to kill him now. I, look again, I, I've never been beaten to death. Um, I'm sure none of you have as well because you wouldn't be here to tell the story. But if you've got a whole mob of angry people who are wanting to kill you and then just a whole lot of other people who just want to join in the riot, it's not going to take a big crowd of people very long to kill you. Uh, you you're not going to last very long. Yet somehow or other this tribune has managed to be able to get 
hear the hear the uh, the up about the uproar, get his men together, and then get down to stop that from actually happening. Now, the reason why that was the case was that if you again, if you you need to sort of Google this, but if you look at a map or, or a diagram of the Jerusalem Temple, what you get is that right next to the Holy of Holies, right right, right next to the temple itself, is um, the the fortress of Antoniah. Now, the fortress of Antoniah was actually built, when the temple was built by Herod, he built this, this Roman fort right in the corner of the temple. Now, the idea of this is that when um, the, the Romans were the occupying force and King Herod was loyal to that Roman force, so he built this temple um, really with them in mind. So he actually built a, a garrison or a place to host a Roman garrison right attached to the temple because he knows he knew that and everyone knew that if ever there was going to be a riot in Jerusalem, if there was if, if ever there was going to be an insurrection begun, it's always going to happen in the temple. That's the holiest place in the Jewish faith. And it's there that everyone goes to celebrate things like Passover, you know, the celebration of the time that God liberated us from our oppressors. It's going to happen in that place. And so you're going to want to always have a Roman garrison right there attached to the temple for this very purpose. So the fact that they could take Paul outside of the temple and yet still get there so quickly, but even hear about it, well, they would have heard about it because it would have been happening just outside the door. So they were able to get there as quickly as possible uh, and to um, to stop this from happening. And so it's, it's just one of those funny things, you know, they, he took the soldiers and the centurions and he ran down and he would have had about a thousand soldiers stationed in the city at all times for this very purpose. Again, they they knew that this was this could have happened. And so he's got a good uh, force of soldiers at his disposal. Uh, and then when they saw the tribune of soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Like, it's just one of those funny sort of comedy stories where they're like, oh, you know, nothing nothing to see here, you know, just sort of all walking away, whistling and hands in their pockets, you know, pretending that nothing's happened and there's a guy just lying half dead in the street, just, you know, has had the crap beaten out of him. Um, but anyway, so he comes down and to just to try to figure out what the hell is going on. There's this, just this riot happening. There's a half dead guy over here. What the hell is going on? So he's, he's got this unenviable task now of trying to dissect all of these events that have just taken place. So the story goes on. Then, then, then the Tribune came up and arrested uh, and him arrested Paul and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another, and as he could not learn the facts about the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks, so back into that barracks, the fortress of Antoniah that we just talked about. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd, for the mob of people followed, crying out, "Away with him!" Now, if that sounds familiar, well, that's because that's exactly what they said about, what is it, maybe 25 years ago when Jesus was in exactly the same position. Now, this could just be Luke um, trying to connect Paul's story, parallel it with the life of Jesus, but the point is the same. Um, you know, just just take him away, just get rid of him, away with him, rid, him, rid the earth of him. Um, that's the general consensus here. 
And so, of course, again, Felicius, he has no idea what's going on. He, he can't figure it out because he's trying to ask for a sensible answer from a mob, mob of people who actually don't know what's going on. I mean, this is just typical mob behavior. They just see the, all the excitement, so they want to join in, but actually have no idea what's going on. In fact, the only people that have any idea are these Ephesian Jews who've made these accusations, um, and they've kind of disappeared out of the story. We actually don't know where these guys are. So it's all a messy situation that he's going to have to try to figure out. And now as we sort of get into this story, because it, it does get really exciting, you've got to put yourself in Lysias' position just for a moment. Now his job, if you remember, there's two rules in empire. Keep the peace, collect the taxes. That's, that's all there is. That's all you have to do. And so rule number one right now is being fundamentally challenged. His job is to keep the peace. Now, he's not the governor of the region. He's just a worker for the governor. So the governor, it's his job to keep the peace and collect the taxes. And so he's got this guy in Jerusalem, in the heartland of where this stuff is going to happen. Now, he so that's his job and and so his head is on the line right his real like literally his head is on the line here if he if he really bombs out badly here this could be his death as well because the romans don't muck around with insurrections so he's got a serious situation on his hand and he's got see he's got a couple of things he's he's got to sort of juggle here he doesn't want to keep going back to the governor for every little issue that's going on. Otherwise, it's like, why have I got you here if I'm fixing all your problems for you? So he wants to be seen to be the one taking care of it. And he wants to be to demonstrate that he's got that ability. But if he bombs it as well, then it's going to end badly for him. So he's got a he's he's got a really sort of tight thread to to have to to sort of weave here. Um, and he doesn't want to be too heavy-handed because if he is heavy-handed, then that might start a riot the other way because now these Romans are coming in and they're stopping us from executing our own laws. So he doesn't want to have that happen because that could cause a riot the other way. But, you know, when you, you're looking at a situation where you've got a guy here who, well, we don't know we don't know where his followers are, if he's got any followers in the city, because if he goes and executes Paul, then his followers could come out of the woodworks and start to cause a riot. But if he doesn't do anything about it, then the people trying to beat him up, they they might riot. Like, I mean, there's any number of scenarios that could play out here. And he's got to somehow try to thread this needle as delicately as possible so that at the very least... He gets to go home back to Rome, right? So that he actually gets to leave this city at the end of his tenure, and um, you know, at least keep his retirement in in uh, in order. Okay, so this is this is a really tense situation that that he's trying to deal with. So the story goes on. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, "May I say something to you?" And he said, "Do you know Greek?" Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. So this story just illustrates how in the dark Claudius Lysias is with this whole situation. He's got absolutely no idea what is going on. 
And, and we can see that very clearly here. So first of all, um, he's, they've picked up Paul and they've bound him in two chains. Now, if you know Paul, you know that you don't need two chains to guard this guy. He's not going anywhere, okay? So, but straight away, they just assume this guy must be some sort of, of insurrectionist or some, I mean, if, if for a single person to be able to stir up that much anger and violence, he must be what, the most hated person in the city, if not the world, and he must, to have that sort of hate against you, you must have just done absolutely atrocious things to these people. I mean, there's no other conclusion you can draw without any other evidence. So his assumption is that this Paul guy is the worst possible person there might be, and he's actually got already an assumption about who, who he is. But he doesn't even know where Paul's from. He doesn't know anything about him. Um, he just assumes he's some Jewish guy from out in the diaspora who um, is just some local troublemaker that's come back to Jerusalem to stir up more trouble. Again, doesn't, doesn't have any idea about him. And so when Paul turns around and says, may I say something to you, he's shocked to find out, first of all, that he, speak, that he speaks Greek. And he says, oh, you, you know Greek? Oh, Oh, okay. Well, that's not what I assumed. I just assumed you were some Aramaic-speaking troublemaker, um, some you know, some renegade from out of the desert somewhere. Or uh, he had no idea. So first of all, didn't even didn't even realize that the guy spoke a common language. So anyway, that's shock number one. But then he says, "Okay, so hang on a second. Uh, aren't you this? Aren't you that Egyptian?" insurrectionist, this guy that stirred up the revolt. Who's he talking about there? Well, about three years prior to Paul's arrest, there'd been this um, Egyptian false prophet who'd come and actually cheated the Jewish people. Um, so what he 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 was... Now, there's there's been, you know, the, the, every year there's a new Messiah, there's somebody who... And the Messiah's job is always the same, which is to lead the people, to get the people to rise up against the Romans and then to overthrow the Romans. So always, there's always a new Messiah on the scene. This is why when Jesus came, it wasn't a shock. Oh my goodness, the Messiah's come. We've never heard of this before. No, they, they'd heard of plenty of Messiahs. The question was, is this the actual one of the many that we've already had? So here's another example of this. An Egyptian Jew who's come and he's um, you know, led this... He's, raised up this army and he's led them out to the Mount of Olives in order to overthrow the Romans. Now, um, they, he told them to, uh, so he, his, his instructions were just, okay, wait up here. And then when I give you the instructions, we're going to go and storm the city. Now the governor at the time, which is just the same governor that we're going to meet later on, Felix, um, he'd actually heard about it uh, and gone and put it down. So he'd killed some of the followers. He'd punished a whole lot more. And basically the people realized, okay, this is not the true Messiah. He's a false prophet. So they've all dispersed. And so this Egyptian guy, the one who this so-called Messiah, he just disappears, right? He just, he goes to wherever he's come from and is never heard from again. Now, the Claudius Lysias in this case has probably thought, oh, it must be the same guy. Surely it's this, this bloke has come back to do the same thing again. I mean, that's why they're so angry. This, this guy has duped all these people, probably got people, he's literally got people murdered. Um, well, of course, if he turns up in the city again, he's going to be public enemy number one and he's going to be the subject of exactly what you see this happening in this riot. Well, anyway, so these there's two assumptions already that have been dispelled. Number one, Paul actually speaks Greek, and number two, he's not this Egyptian guy. In fact, Paul turns around and he says the very opposite 
of what Lysias would have expected. First of all, he says, I'm a Jew. Okay, well, that's that's no surprise there. Okay, well, um, we, we, you know, we get that. But I'm from Tarsus in Cilicia. Well, as we know of Tarsus, this is a very sophisticated city, right? One of the three university cities of the ancient world, um, a very important place. And so that's... I completely, again, we've gone from, in, in, in a matter of a moment in Lysias's mind, we've gone from this um, yokel, um, you know, um, troublemaking, non-Greek speaking Jewish guy from a, an obscure place down in Egypt to this Greek speaking Jew from a very sophisticated part of the world, certainly not a local, but from a very sophisticated place, um, and he's just not what he expected. So, you know, what do you do with that? Well, he says he wants to speak to the people. All right, well, maybe if you speak to the people, I'll get an idea of what's going on as well because clearly I have no idea what's going on here. So, you know what? Absolutely, off you go. Say your piece. Now, there are a couple of things to note here about what Paul is about to say. The first thing is that he hasn't mentioned so far that he's a Roman citizen. Now, remember to keep in mind that Paul is a Roman citizen, and what that means is that he's automatically protected by the Roman authorities. So this Claudius Lysias has a legal obligation to protect Paul in these circumstances, particularly from people who are non-citizens. This is this, this this is a capital crime. You attack a Roman citizen, particularly without any, any trial, that automatically puts the Jewish people in the spotlight. They they become the targets of this story. So Paul has that card to play. This is this is the ace up his sleeve, and this is what he's going to be carrying through this whole circumstance. So he's got that card available to him, but he doesn't play it. He he holds it. So Lysias has gone from thinking that Paul is a you know renegade foreigner to a sophisticated Greek-speaking Jew. That's a huge shift in his thinking, but he still just assumes he's a Jewish person that is of still of ultimately no consequence. He's still treating him as just one of this mob, um, not knowing this very important fact about him being a citizen, because the minute Paul says, I'm a Roman citizen, all of this goes away. In fact, he has at his disposal that whole Roman garrison that could um, and, and Lysias' demand would actually go there and put down this riot on Paul's behalf. So that that's the the turnaround that could be played at any moment. Now, Paul doesn't do that. Now, like for Paul, you just sort of think, wow, you, you can get yourself out of this pretty easily, but he doesn't do that yet. He, he's going to hold that card until the absolute moment when he needs to play it properly, and that's going to come later on. But the reason why he doesn't do that is because he still wants to address the Jewish people. And if he does that, if he if he plays that card, well, number one, it could have the Romans turn against the Jewish people, but at the very least, it's going to separate him in their eyes from them. Paul is still a Jew at heart. He wants. He still wants to address these people. He still wants to bring them to salvation at the very least. Uh, but if, if he's separating himself by saying, I'm on the Roman side, well, that's it. They, not only are they never going to listen to him again, they're going to do everything they can to still try to kill him. So that, that is just not going to fix the situation here. Um, so he's, holding, he's just holding that card just for the moment. One, just to keep the Romans at bay, but also just to keep the Jewish people hopefully on side to at least give the semblance that he's with them. But then as the story goes on, after receiving the commander's permission, Paul stood on the steps and motioned to the crowd. 
When they were all silent, he said to them in Aramaic, Brothers and fathers, listen now to my defense. When they heard him speak in Aramaic, they became very quiet. Now there's a couple, oh boy, this is, this is interesting. Number one, Paul could speak Greek, of course. He, he might have even been able to speak a bit of Latin. But the fact that he could speak Aramaic automatically makes him a local. The, that's the common language. Jesus would have spoken Aramaic. There might have been Jewish speakers, but um, the the um, the lingua franca of the region was still Aramaic. And so the fact that Paul could speak that fluently, of course he could, because he was raised in a Jewish diaspora, but then he spent half of his life in Jerusalem. He was educated in Jerusalem in Aramaic. So he knows the language. He knows the people. He is a local. Now, the thing to remember, he's, he's been away from Jerusalem for a long time. He was the man in Jerusalem 20 years ago, now, or maybe 30 years ago, but now a new generation's growing up who, who doesn't know Paul. So he, he was a local, but he's not anymore as far as they know. But this brings him closer. The fact that they all stopped what they were doing and listened to him, oh, you know, because their assumptions about him were he's just some diaspora Jew who's here to cause trouble. I mean, that's what these accusers from Ephesus have said. He's just some troublemaker that they knew back in Ephesus who's bringing Greeks into the temple. Um, he's definitely not a local. He's he's a he's a, an apostate um, 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 Hellenistic Jew. But now he's coming back and speaking the local language. Like, hang on, how did you what? Who is this guy? Like, no one knows who this guy is. The Romans have got no idea, and the Jews have got no idea. Everyone's just all in a state of confusion, and it's all just a great big mess. But anyway, so Paul gets up, and he starts to address them in Aramaic, which does a couple of things. Number one, that means that the Romans can't understand him. So this, like, Lysias is going, yes, please talk to them so that I can figure out who you are, but... Now they can't understand him. But even more interestingly, the very accusers who brought him in the first place, these Ephesian Jews who brought him there in the first place, they too wouldn't have been able to wouldn't have been able to understand him. So it's all just I mean the whole thing is just over all over the place here. And importantly, they couldn't understand him. But that also means that they couldn't refute him either, right? They they wouldn't have been able to understand what Paul's saying. The locals could. He was speaking their language, but they got, the guys bringing the accusation are almost in a, in a sense of being placed in the position now of being actual foreigners. They've tried to make Paul out as being the foreigner. He's, he's, the, he's the apostate, um, the outsider, but now actually he's the insider to this group and the guys who are bringing the accusations can't refute him because actually they're the outsiders. So everyone is just getting relocated all within a matter of five minutes. Everybody is just not where they were when all of this began. So Paul goes on in the story. I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city. I studied under Gamaliel and was thoroughly trained in the law of our ancestors. I was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. I persecuted the followers of this way to their death, arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison. As the high priest and all the council can themselves testify, I even obtained letters from their associates in Damascus and went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. Now, we know that story. We've already seen that story already throughout Acts. But for these people in the crowd, they don't know this. This is all brand new information to them. And so in, they've gone again in, from five minutes ago to this is a gent, basically an apostate diaspora Jew who 
is not a local in any way, shape, and form. So they've beaten the hell out of him. To now he's an he's an insider because he's speaking Aramaic, and the guys bringing the accusations are outsiders. But even more than that, he wasn't. He's not just a local boy. He was the man. Back in his day when he was in Jerusalem, he was the one that they would have been turning to to say, go and kill the apostates, because that's literally what he was doing. He would have been heading up this mob. He literally was the guy that would have been heading up this mob if it was him back in his day. So all their assumptions have just been completely blown out of the water here. And just no one knows what to do with the guy. And mind you, the Romans that are standing behind him trying to figure out this story have no idea what he's saying because, again, they're speaking, he's speaking in Aramaic. So it's all just a great big mess. But then he goes on, and we won't go through all the details of his testimony. It's all there in the story of Acts. But then we get to the end now um, of, of the story, and this is where, again, where it all just goes to hell. He says, when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying at the temple, I fell into a trance and saw the Lord speaking to me. Quick, he said, leave Jerusalem immediately because the people here will not accept your testimony about me. Lord, I replied, these people know that I went from one synagogue to another to imprison and beat those who believe in you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I stood there giving my approval and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. Then the Lord said to me, go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. So in this in this particular situation, Paul's been called to to the ministry and and God says to him, okay, first things first, they're not going to accept you here. They're not going to accept your testimony. And in Paul's mind, he's he's saying to him, but but I was a zealot, right? I mean, I was I was their guy. Surely they're going to accept me. I mean, they know who I was. They they know how passionate I was for you. And they're going to hear my testimony about how I've converted. They're going to go, oh my goodness, Jesus must be the Messiah. Like he was looking at his conversion as being the testimony that he could use to go back to these same people and say, hey guys, look at what God has done. And and, and just have that way to be able to preach to them. And God's like, no, no, absolutely not. That is not going to happen. I'm going to send you away to the Gentiles, number one, because they're not going to accept your testimony, but number two, I actually want you to be an apostle to the Gentiles. So this is, Paul has just spent a bit of time now recounting in Aramaic what this testimony was. Again, we we know the story, but the people in his audience don't. And so they've been listening along um, enraptured by as Paul's unfolding this story, like who the heck is this guy? All of this is becoming, seems to be becoming a little bit clearer. But then he drops that line, I'm going to send you far away to the Gentiles. Well, that's where absolutely everything just falls to pieces. As it says, the crowd listened to Paul until he said this, and then they raised their voices and shouted, rid the earth of him, he's not fit to live. As they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the commander ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. He directed that he be flogged and interrogated in order to find out why the people were shouting at him like this. So this has got really 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 bad the people they if they didn't want to kill him before they absolutely want to kill him and tear him limb from limb in this i don't care aramaic speaking you're a local boy you're an absolute apostate the worst possible kind because you've just gone and lived as a gentile you're everything we thought you were we just want you dead 
But on the other hand, the guys that could protect him, the Romans, have no idea what's going on because they didn't understand a word Paul has just said. All they know is Paul's just been speaking in tongues to this group. They've got no idea what has been said. And then when he's finished talking, they've got more murderous than they've ever seen anybody in their lifetime. So what the heck did you say to them? What What is going on here? Who are you? What is? What have you said to them? Why do they want to kill you so badly? We just need to get to the bottom of this. And well, first of all, we need to get you out of this situation because that angry mob there are about to come up these stairs and they're about to tear you to pieces. So first of all, we need to get you out of this situation. We need to get you into the barracks behind closed doors. And then we need to figure out who are you? What on earth is going on? And so on that cliffhanger, we're going to finish today and we're going to pick up this story next week as we continue on. Um, but anyway, I hope this has been helpful and I promise you next week will be our last week together dealing with this story. I, I'm 99% certain of that, but we'll see how we go. But anyway, have a great week and I will see you next week. All the best. All the best.